Hey, hey, party people. This is Thy Neighbor Podcast with Tracy King, interviewing my outstanding neighbors. Today's guest is Heidi Draper, an administrator at Granite School District, a chocolate chip cookie connoisseur, a former roommate, and a phenomenal woman. Have a listen. My name is Heidi Draper. I am currently an assistant principal at two elementary schools, and this is my fourth year as an assistant. Prior to that, I taught first and second grade, predominantly in Title I schools. Um, I have a real passion for the demographic that feeds into Title I schools and what they represent. Um, As an undergrad, I student taught in Houston, Texas. Um, They did some recruiting from a school district in Houston at universities across the country to recruit teachers because they had a hard time retaining teachers because it was a very difficult school district, demographic, situationally. And so I had just come home from a mission from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I was really eager to be part of something like that. So I went to Houston and student taught in kindergarten and fourth grade for about five months there. And then I came back and started teaching. So I taught for 10 years prior to becoming an administrator. And when you said you're passionate about the um, the targeted audiences <laughs> of the those who feed into Title I schools, can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit more about why that flourished or how that grew? Sure. So I, so I, I lived in the Philippines for my mission and the Philippines as you know, is a third world country. So there's a lot of poverty and I became really aware of both the virtue and the vice of poverty. I mean, there isn't really a virtue of poverty, but in what it brings out in people, like the kindness and the humility and the ability and desire to give all you have to people, the people in the Philippines are incredibly generous with the little that they have and so happy. And so, but then I also, I like being privileged here in America and also coming from a middle-class home, I just saw more intimately how much materially I have and what a blessing that is and um, how much I wanted to influence the disparity in those who have and those who have don't have. So when I came home from my mission, I was already an elementary education major at Utah State before that. Um, but that really influenced my trajectory as a teacher. I wanted to teach in Title I schools, which are in schools that are um, socioeconomically lower. So they are, a Title I school is the percentage of students in your school who have free and reduced breakfast and lunch. So it's those who can't afford that. And Um, I love that because it's the same kind of virtue and vice that I saw in the Philippines. Those children and families are so generous and giving and happy with the little that they have, but they're also, um, there's a struggle with what they come to. This is a really long tangent, but for example, when kids come to kindergarten, if they have been in a, in a home and in an environment that has given them opportunities to go places and see things, they come to kindergarten with a vocabulary of, 10 to 20,000 words and kids who are in poverty because of different situations often come to kindergarten with five, 6,000 words. You can see the disparity in what they even understand and are able to access with their vocabulary. So a lot of them are multilingual learners. So that makes a difference to um, learning English, but they, so there's a lot of need, but there's also a lot of 
joy in those situations as well. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So I'm curious, how can you, so what if there were two students that entered your classroom mm-hmm. and one of them you could tell had definitely received more of tr- more training mm-hmm. prior to getting to your classroom mm-hmm. and somebody else who was a new language learner um, and entered your class at the same time, how fast could that one, could the one who has a language difference, like how fast could they, how quickly could they catch up? Could mm-hmm. you see that within the year? Or? Oh, yeah. And I think it, I mean, this is with anything, right? It depends on the child, depends on the situation. Right. But I had one student who came in when I was teaching first grade who didn't know a single word of English. She had just come arrived with her family to Utah with, I mean, they were native Spanish speakers. And she was so scared to come to school. I mean, you can imagine for those of us who have been in environments where you go in not knowing the language, it's really frightening. And she, but by the end of that school year, she was talking in conversations with her peers and was able to do the work. I mean, she, that was probably the steepest trajectory of someone who came in with nothing and was leaving on grade level with what she could read and say. So that's, so exciting and it depends on what they're able to do at home yeah um but also like what they i mean kids are so they have this insatiable desire to learn and their bodies and their brains are just so pliable so they can get so much information and make so much growth but there is a lot of variable there are a lot of variables that affect that if Mm -hmm. they are able to practice at home if they have opportunities to be talking. Talking is huge. And I would often tell my the parents of my students, because a lot of them, most of them want their kids to achieve and want them to do well and want to help them. Right. And they're totally capable of doing that, but it might be a language barrier or it might be the environment of the school they're not familiar with that they just don't know how to help their child. And I would tell them all the time, you reading to them in any language is going to help them in English as well as whatever language they spoke at home. Just being able to hear the words helps children be able to speak the words. And talking with people makes a big difference. A lot of the reasons that those kids who come into kindergarten with so many more vocabulary words, it's because they are talking with their parents or their siblings or other adults who are in their life or they're going to the zoo or the aquarium or going to places where they're hearing all of these words and then using them. That's how we acquire language. So to answer your question, it depends on the child, but they, as long as they're able to use the language, they leave kindergarten, first grade with so many tools to keep going. Mm-hmm. And did you feel like the, um, what have you noticed in regards to the input when you were talking about they're, the more they're exposed mm-hmm. to different mm-hmm. venues of learning, basically, mm-hmm. and opportunities to just to have multiple avenues or different ways that they can receive that language mm-hmm. acquisition. What are your concerns with social media and mm-hmm. the kind of the world of like technology that it's going? They get a lot of access actually to a global community. Sure. Yeah. And I'm curious in what ways do you think that's a positive versus maybe a negative? I think that's with all of us. I think social media can be a really wonderful thing. I love connecting with people that I knew and love in the Philippines and social media gives me that access and avenue to keep in touch with them. And I think it's the same, but I also think you can get 
it can be a rabbit hole where you're only getting the same kind of information and the same kind of vocabulary, or maybe it's not healthy things that you're seeing on social media. And I think kids have that. So I feel like the social media and the internet offer us so many things to access the world in ways that we haven't seen. So they can see places that they can't go to, but they can experience them virtually, which I think is wonderful. And having all children, wherever they come from, have that opportunity is so amazing. And I've done, even before the pandemic and COVID, when we couldn't go out and do field trips, there are places that will do virtual conferences with your kids. And I've done like, there's, it's called the Bee Museum down at BYU, mm-hmm. where they will <clears throat> show you animals and have the kids interact with them over the screen, which you think, how does that work? But the kids loved it. And they did such a wonderful job of seeing things that they wouldn't be able to otherwise. So I think it can be really positive. And I think if we as adults and educators help them tap into those avenues that are good places to be on the internet, it can be a really wonderful thing. I went to a conference in June where it was talking about how we teach kids in the pandemic and post-pandemic trauma. And some of the things that they talked about were not only being removed from the school environment where they have that safe and stable place to talk with teachers and adults and other peers in a safe space, but they also think about what they viewed in this last year. I mean, you have like the, like they were seeing George Floyd killed on the TV over and over and over again, and all of those different things. How did the that impact that. them? Yeah, the results of that, the rioting, and and how that impacted like their social right. media channels and just what right. was going on and circulating as well. And it reminds me, I mean, even before social media and the internet was a ubiquitous thing that we had in our lives. When I was student teaching in Houston, my school was a bunch of apartments. That's where the kids lived. And one day we were in a a lockdown for two, three hours because there had been a homicide in the apartment complex next door and they hadn't found the person who had done that. And so we were all in lockdown. But at the end of the school day, we all went home. Those kids went home to that same apartment complex and that is their life. It's the same thing we're seeing now, but on a bigger scale. So those kids were impacted by homicides happening in their apartment complex and they could be safe at school for those hours that we were keeping them safe but then we still sent them home to that environment and that is impacting the way that they come to learning so that's kind of a lot of different ideas but I think we need to be really mindful of what kids are coming to the table with and not just be you can provide a wonderful culture of learning in your classroom but if they have trauma and experiences that they've seen or dealt with themselves, there's a barrier to what they can access academically. I mean, there's research all over the place about that and places who are doing, like they call it resilience and trauma-based teaching. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with the ACEs, acute, um, what is it? uh, Adverse childhood experiences. So there, several years ago, physicians and educators came together because they were noticing a pattern in kids with um, trauma that they weren't able to learn and access learning. So they started identifying situations that these kids had in common and they call them the ACEs or the adverse childhood experiences. And they made a list of the top 10, 15 most common traumatic experiences. And then if you have a student in your classroom, who you feel like there is something that is really making it difficult for them to learn. You can ha- give them, not like a quiz, but like an assessment of right. what ACEs did you have in your life? And then it helps you better understand, okay, because maybe they witnessed 
some sort of abuse in their home. Maybe they've experienced abuse in their home. Maybe they've seen someone killed who's close to them. Maybe they don't have enough food or enough money. And those sort of things are traumatic experiences. Most people have one, maybe two, but there are kids who have all 10, all 15. And they found, the physicians found that if you have multiple ACEs, there is a physical barrier to your ability to access learning because it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And their higher, their basic needs aren't being met. So they can't come to that. And I would recommend to you and anyone to watch those, their sort of documentary, it's called Resilience. And there are several other ones that they put out that talk about trauma-based teaching right? um, and how it impacts all of us. How do you feel like that's going to like, how do you feel like teaching is going to be altered as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? I think it's another traumatic experience that may be listed as an adverse childhood experience as the years go on. My principal and I were talking about this yesterday. We won't know for years to come how this is impacting kids in education. We can see some short-term effects, but I do feel like it's going to be um, something that impacts kids for long-term. But I also think to the flip side, there are a lot of wonderful things that have come of this ed- in education that I hope improve education, not just now, but for the future. I think the way that teachers are communicating with parents, um, like there's something we use in elementary school that may be used in junior highs and high schools called class dojo, where it's just a texting forum for kids, for parents and teachers. And the teachers are sending home pictures of their class and work home. And because the parents can't come to the school, they are now sending school home with them. Well, that's a wonderful thing that we should be doing already. And we could continue doing or just paring down the things that we don't need and doing only the essential things in education and really focusing in on what is most important for these kids to know and learn and experience at school And I think that doesn't mean that we don't do the fun activities, but making sure those activities are propelling them forward. And I think that's actually a silver lining to the pandemic that I think hopefully improves all of us as educators. Right. And I'm curious what has been your experience as you've worked with actual teachers and educators. How have you helped them find the silver lining or how have you like what do you feel like you've gained by having to be a leader amidst a situation like this? Like, I mean, I feel like you're really in the trenches of this with being an administration where you're a leader for the people who are the educators at this time. Yeah, I think that it gives me a unique perspective. I do think that teachers have the hardest job right now because they, I mean, you yourself, we were talking about this earlier about what we have to bring to the table, like all the digital tools that we are taking on now as teachers. And a lot of teachers are doing a hybrid where they're doing some distance learning at the same time they're doing face-to-face learning. And that's two full-time jobs. And you can just tell that teachers are really overwhelmed. So one way that I, as an administrator, I just am in awe of what teachers are doing and what they've taken on and how they've um, met this task with amazing ability. And I'm just really proud of educators all over the country. And I'm really proud of the educators in my schools. I also recognize too, helping them see that they are capable of taking on new ways of teaching. I think that the digital tools are really 
overwhelming for some teachers because it's not what they have been doing. For those veteran teachers who have been teaching for many years, digital tools are really scary. And I, so helping them see you can do this. And in the spring, I did a lot of Zoom tutoring with some teachers and helping them learn some tools. And I learned tools too, and I've improved my teaching And I would be a better teacher if I went back to the classroom today than I was when I left it because of everything. But just helping them see that they can and that the kids can. Like, this doesn't have to be a terrible thing. It can be a really good thing, too. It's easier said than done. For sure. Yeah, Um, absolutely. But I also think that even before the pandemic, helping teachers see trauma-based teaching is something that I feel really um, passionately about. Because these this trauma isn't going away. And I feel like all of us want to teach an ideal little class with no problems, kids who want to learn and want to be there with no issues, but that's never going to be what we come to as teachers. So helping them see this is, this is your classroom and there are wonderful opportunities there. And I think the pandemic just sort of highlighted that that is the nature of teaching. And how do you feel like you, what have you missed from being outside the classroom, Mm -hmm. not having your own class? Oh, uh, that's a great question. I miss, well, it's kind of both. Like I miss having my own little group of people that are my little group of people that we get to know each other really well because we're spending seven hours a day, five days a week with each other for nine months. And you really come to be attached to those little people and their families. And I miss that. I miss that like intimate environment where your classroom is like your home base Um, I remember one student that I was teaching second grade and they all came in to my door and they gave me a greeting as they came in and there, and they always had a self-start on their desk. And so they got right to work. And there was one little guy who came in and just, he was so angry. Like it just, his body was like exuding anger and frustration. And so everyone else went in and he and I just talked and he shared some really poignant experiences from the morning and the night before that had happened in his house. And it really helped me to see, oh my goodness, no wonder he is so frustrated and angry today. And we're going to do something different for his self-start. So I had him write a letter to someone at his house about what had happened. And having that relationship. I mean, if I hadn't had him every day, then I wouldn't have been able to key into some of those things. And I miss that about having your own classroom. But also, I love knowing all of the kids. And I spent two hours every day in the lunchroom with all the kids first grade through sixth grade. And just seeing them, especially now with their masks off and like being able to see their whole face and their smiles and knowing the whole kind of getting a temperature of the whole school, not just my own little classroom is really overwhelming. And my first year, I didn't deal well with that, but it's kind of compensating for not having your own little group of people because you now get to know all of them, not as well, but what character trait that you have has best served you as an administrator? Oh, Well, I should say, um, being an administrator, even though I went to grad school to get a master's of education and got an administrative certificate, so logically anyone hearing that will be like, of course you plan on becoming a principal. And I did in my head, but emotionally I was not prepared to become an administrator as soon as I did. I was thinking, oh, I'll have this in my back pocket, so 10 years down the road when I'm ready to transition out of the classroom, I can become an administrator. And certain things happened that put me in administration right off the bat when I graduated from 
with my master's. And so I don't think emotionally I was prepared to be an administrator as quickly as I was. So I, I feel like I, I'm sort of an imposter. I really suffer from imposter syndrome thinking, oh my goodness, I shouldn't be here. I don't know all the things I should know. And that's true. I don't. But I also think as I've settled in more, I think my um, desire to speak to those trauma-based um, teaching, uh, it's not like trauma-based practice and also those children who have trauma, I'm really keyed into that. That really helps me hopefully bring something to the table that helps teachers and helps students. Um, in my office, I have and this is sort of, I would say, an inspiration ever since I, my first year as an assistant, and I kept it that way ever since. I have a little calming corner in my office where there's a chair and a pillow and several calming tools that when kids come in for um, discipline or they're frustrated or whatever it may be, that there's a safe space for them to just cool down before we talk about whatever it is. And I think that my experiences have helped me be mindful of that. And I've had really good mentors in my in my life, especially as an administrator, who have helped me to see how you approach discipline with that mindset, that we teach academics and we reteach academics and we reteach academics when they don't get it. When they have a behavior, we don't always reteach the behavior, but it takes time to learn any skill and behavior is a skill. So letting them come in and say, you made a mistake, but this is an opportunity for you to learn a skill so this mistake doesn't keep happening. And you might end up in my office again and again and again, but we'll keep reteaching you until this behavior becomes a skill for you, just like we would any academic piece. And I think I love that part of that. And I love helping teachers see like behavior is a skill we teach and we don't punish behavior. We help kids see there are consequences to choices, but behavior is something that you can learn. Well, I need to learn that too. <laughs> I think that's really good. I mean, just the importance of, because I, as a teacher, when I have a student who's acting out mm -hmm. or triggering me, mm -hmm. honestly, sure. it's like you're a disruption to the rest of the class mm -hmm. and you are, or you are causing this class to not be able to move forward academically mm -hmm. or on the task that we are currently working on. Right. And therefore... I need to address you and still be able to like take care of my, mm -hmm. my flock. Yeah. You know? And I think sometimes you're like, all right, throw them out to the wolves, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, or, but yeah. I think I, I, one of the things I've learned is not that like throw them to the wolves, but it's like, I need you out of the pack. Mm -hmm. You need to be removed from this situation. And we both need to be removed. Right, I can't talk yeah. to you right now and be a good person. So you should probably go down to the office mm -hmm. in the peaceful corner or whatever. Right, yeah. You should go somewhere else so that we can both have a more productive conversation at a later time mm -hmm. that will actually help the situation rather than like... <clears throat> escalating it. Escalating. Yeah. And so I, I sometimes wonder as a teacher, am I, you know, I ask myself the question, am I ready right now to go and talk to that student? Yeah. Or is it not the time? <laughs> like... Do I just need a timeout and they need a timeout? And I right? love that you say that because I think teachers have such an awesome opportunity to model that. A lot of these kids don't know how to appropriately deal with emotions. And when they see a teacher, emotions aren't bad. And I tell that to kids all the time because I think that 
it's a learned thing, but we say like being angry is bad. Being angry isn't bad. It's what you do with your anger that becomes a problem. But all of us feel anger. All of us feel frustration. All of us feel triggered by personalities or situations or whatever happened at our house before we're triggered too. But for kids to see, you know what? I'm angry right now and I'm angry at something you did. And that anger is real and it's okay to feel, but what I do with it is what you need to see. Like I can be angry at you, but I don't have to hurt you. And I think teachers can acknowledge that. I'm expecting teachers, excuse me, I remember in college, I had a professor who said, when you walk in that door, you put all your personal things to the side and you, you come in with that same happy face every day. And I think that is a really wonderful idea. And I think that's true. We need to be a stable influence, but that's not realistic. I'm going to be frustrated sometimes. I'm going to be tired sometimes. I'm going to be exhausted. And if I don't show the kids that I feel that, then how are they ever going to learn? Oh, adults steal these things and they they work with it. They still come to work. They still do their job, but they're exhausted. So I have steered away from that perspective because I think these kids deserve that. And we deserve that as teachers. Oh, 100%. We're human. Totally. And I think the world expects teachers to be superhuman. And quite frankly, a lot of teachers are, but I also think we can't expect that. Like teachers have emotions and that's okay. And it's also an opportunity for connection. Absolutely. If I know that my teacher is feeling frustrated, but still cares about me, what a powerful thing for me as a child to grow up and learn. I can still love and care about someone and still be really frustrated with them. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. it's really important for us to like um, show them who we are mm-hmm. because they're learning from us. Yeah. They're like, they're taking cues from us about how to behave. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like I'm emotional now as a result. <laughs> anyway. Um, so my question, because my, is the, is the thy neighbor podcast mm-hmm. and I have really witnessed you be a community, to, like a community builder, not just in the school, but in your own personal life. And I've watched you do that. And so I, I, want to know like why do you feel passionate about community well thank you that is really kind of you um i definitely think it's a nurtured character trait from my parents and my family my parents are very community community oriented um so i grew up um in a little rural town and my parents weren't from there originally but that's where my dad's job took us and they just jumped right in participating in the community, my dad and my mom, but my dad kind of spearheaded a cultural council. Um, I think it existed before he got there, but he got on the committee and then became the president of it for 30 years, bringing different cultural things to this little small town um, from like Shakespeare and opera and ballet and ballroom dancing and plays and all these different things and music and to help bring that to a community that maybe didn't have all of those resources. And it was a lot of time and effort, but he, I, my dad found a lot of joy in that. And my mom was involved with the PTA all growing up and she really put her whole soul into making the PTA and the community center of the school, something really fun and worthwhile and the things that she did. And that was just the way that they have always been. And so I sort of feel like it was a way of life growing up. But I also think my parents were really perceptive about me. I I was born a worrier and I have a lot of anxiety in my own self. And so my nature is to just be in my own little corner and do my own little thing. I don't want to make waves. I don't like tension and contention. And I would rather just be home with my little group of people. 
And my parents really pushed me to do things that were so scary for me. Um, Can you give an example? Yeah. yeah. So um, I can't even imagine teachers doing this. It's remarkable. But we used to have a whole school play and musical every year. These couple of teachers took that on. And now as an administrator and teacher, I think this is amazing. But I, um, I wanted to be a part of it, but it scared me to death. But my mom really encouraged me to try out and give it a chance. And this is kind of like not really speaking to your question, but it's an example of my mom's love and her desire to help me do hard things. So I practiced this little song and my mom had accompanied me. And then we get to the tryouts and the lady who was in charge of it was a phenomenal musician and a pianist. She just offered like, Hey, I'll play for you because she just is good at that and can do everything. And I'm sure my mom was thinking, Oh, thank you. Um, but I wouldn't try out unless my mom played the piece for me. And so she did that for me and I tried out and I was the chorus. And then I eventually became a bigger part as the years went on. But that was a lot of overcoming fear that my parents just helped me to do. And also we'll get back to your question, but my parents always were proud of whatever I did. So whatever piece I got in the play or whatever I tried that was against my nature, they were really proud of that. And I know all my siblings feel the same way. So I think they led by example. And I, so I don't, I didn't ever feel like it was an obligation for them to be in the community. It was a desire for them to um, be a part of people's lives. And so do you feel like um, that's because they understood who they are? Or absolutely. Or they understood their contributions yes. and their power? And I think that um, if we're going to talk about like the two great commandments that sort of run through any religious denomination that you may be a part of or just being a person with morals and conscience that you love your neighbor, that kind of your podcast, the title of it, that you have, you care for other people that it's like survival of self and survival of the species. Survival of species is really important that we make sure we are taking care of one another. So I know my sisters and my brother and I have all talked about how we feel compelled to help those around us. Sort of like, not to use a cliche, but there is a calling to be a part of other people's lives. Maybe it's because we're all a little bit extroverted. And so we want to be with people and get my energy from people, but also like I have been so blessed um, in so many ways that I want other people to feel that as well. Um, I was thinking this morning about um, like people who are hurting and who people who don't have friends is something that really, really is hard for me. The loneliness of that. And I have never been without friends and I am so grateful for that. But I think never having someone who's in your corner is heartbreaking to me. And I think that we, that's something all of us can do. All of us can reach out to people who are alone. And so I do feel like it is a calling in a way, but I think it was nurtured into myself and my siblings from my parents and also their parents. But my parents are really, really good to be aware of the needs of other people. And what about like the cultural, why did your dad, how did he know how important it is to <laughs> expose an entire community to culture yeah to give them that like richness in a in i mean let's be honest normally smaller rural towns mm-hmm. just don't have those advantages yeah. or they don't seek after them maybe sure. as much as they could mm-hmm. without maybe a university that brings in kind yeah. of cultural opportunities but i'm i'm just thinking 
like, how did he have that vision or that foresight or that ability? Like, do you know, I mean, do you know yeah. the answer to that question? I don't know if I know the answer. I think it's just my dad's personality and my mom's. Both of them love to learn. And both of them have always loved to learn. I mean, my mom growing up took ukulele lessons and was in a little musical group and was in a dancing group. But she just loved all of those things. And my dad like loved, he learned how to play the saxophone and just loved that. I think it's just part of the personality. They just love that sort of thing, but also recognize how much a difference it makes in your life. Like the arts impact you so much. Mm -hmm. So we definitely are like my brother and my, one of my sisters are super athletic and my dad like played sports and things like that, but they definitely value the our arts or like tilted that way. Right? right. And so I think that's just something that they found. Like we want these experiences in our own lives. So to get them here, we've involved the community and help that be a part of the balance of the community. I think athletics, music, art, both of them have a place, but you need a balance of both of them for like a whole child to be taught with both of those things. And my parents just found that valuable. So beautiful. And why are you such a passionate person? As I've watched you, I've, I've always thought, well, why, like, how did she become this person that she is? And I feel like you've always valued your family. Like you've had this immense gratitude for your parents and, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I'm emotional about it. Like, I'm like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) you know, you just love your family so much, Heidi. You're such an example to other people about loving your family. But I'm super emotional. I don't even know why about all the things you've said. I'm just like, oh my gosh. I'm so inspired. Um, but you just ask really good questions. <laughs> that must be it. Or I'm just needing to emotionally <laughs> let things go. But um, I'm just, I'm curious in your own family, the, the family that you would like to have, mm-hmm. what would you do? What would you take from your family that you would hope to infuse in your own family or how do you infuse that in the students that you've taught throughout time? Like what are some of those things that you want to like perpetuate to anyone really? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Um, well, I feel like my parents leave really hard shoes to fill. If I ever came to be a parent, I would be really overwhelmed by trying to do what they did. But I think, something I've been thinking a lot about is I want children to want to learn. We are so lucky in America that we provide an education for every child. And I think that is wonderful. I believe strongly in the public education system. And I think we should, I believe that we should educate every child, but I do think that we see a sense of, taking for granted this thing that just exists for everybody that we don't have to necessarily work for it. It is just there. And so I see a lot of kids and some teachers too, who don't love learning because it's just there. And I, I want kids to want to learn, not because they're going to get a grade or because they're going to get a scholarship or whatever it may be, but I want them to want to learn because learning makes you a happier person. It makes you a better person. It makes you um, 
love life. And I think that is what my parents gave to all of us and what I would hope to give to the students and the teachers and the people, and hopefully someday my own children, that learning is a gift in and of itself. Um, we tease, so my parents have been married for 46 years, almost 47 years. And my sister calculated the other day that there are only two years in the 46 years that my dad has not been in school. Um, because he just keeps going back to get different degrees for really no reason at all, except that he likes to learn. So my dad was a nurse anesthetist, which is a wonderful job and provided really well for us. But he, after he retired from becoming a nurse anesthetist, he got another master's in sociology just because he wanted to. (laughs) And my mom has taken classes intermittently through the years and has helped us to learn new things. They just love learning for learning's sake because it opens you up to the world and what the world, like what someone, even you, even though we grew up in similar situations, learning about you and me learning about other things helps me understand the world better. And that's how we become like unified together because we're learning that there are different ways to do things. Mm -hmm. If I learn music from Western Europe, and then I learn music from Africa, those two types of music are so different, but they inform me about how people all over the world live. If I learn like, I'm, I don't, I'm not super into rap, but I appreciate it because a lot of Come my students now. like rap, right? Can you, if you know me at all, <laughs> but like knowing my students like rap helps me understand them. And if I learn some rap, then I, I mean, that's a really cliche example, but it's a music venue that I don't spend a lot of time in. But if I learn more about it, I am a better person, not because I'm gaining anything monetarily from that, or I'm not getting something from that. Learning about it is the joy. And that's what I wish more students came to school. Your job would be easier if the kids came wanting to learn and recognizing that you have something that will make their lives better. And isn't it so sad that kids are sort of apathetic toward learning and how much they are missing out? I was reading the other day and I thought it's amazing that I can read. I mean, not too long ago, women weren't allowed that and just people who weren't the wealthy didn't learn to read. They weren't literate. And I get to check out books from the library at my desire. Yeah. And that's amazing. And I think we're teaching every child to be literate. That's a gift that I don't think that so many people realize. And I wish that was a long answer, but I wish more people loved learning. Oh, you know, that's so interesting because I think, um, when somebody's thirsty or hungry mm-hmm. for learning, it's just amazing. Yeah. And sometimes the magic of teaching is that there are kids who still yes. are. Yes. You know, and I think they're the magic. They're the magic. Like, mm-hmm. oh, they're the magic. Or if you can turn that on and like someone who's apathetic and you see that they just get this peak interest of something, it's like, yes, I have done something right. But I don't know how to capitalize on that. I think a lot about that and think, is there a way that we can captivate that curiosity in kids and cultivate it and across the board. And I wonder, and maybe this is my, like the, the, um, the challenge of life or the contrast that life provides us is that there are some who will come and will want it. And there Mm -hmm. are some who will come who will not. Mm -hmm. And at the time, maybe they eventually will learn to love learning, 
but maybe right now there's too much trauma or sure. there's other things that are preventing that learning from that love mm-hmm. from emerging the way it could yeah. potentially emerge. And so I think I love that tie back almost to that trauma based mm-hmm. that, that understanding trauma so that these kids could potentially gain and access the love of learning. Yes. Instead of just this emotional survival. Yes. That they can't, you know, that they're struggling. And, and, and maybe as a teacher to remember that mm-hmm. when you're dealing with some of these Absolutely. kids is that they're maybe right now they're not going to love what you're teaching them, mm-hmm. but maybe one day they'll learn it. Yeah. They'll remember. Or I think if we can make an environment, not only in the school, but in our neighborhoods, in our communities where we're diminishing that trauma. So then they're coming to the schoolroom with a better capacity to access learning. And I think that really is what we need to be focusing on. How can we build the communities, the families and the neighborhoods so the trauma is less, so kids are taken care of, so they can focus on learning. Right. And I feel like that's that does come back to the family, mm-hmm. right? But I also feel like, because a lot of who you are is because of who your parents mm-hmm. trained you to Absolutely. be or the things that they encouraged you to do. Mm-hmm. And I think the same for me, right? Right. It's like my parents were the biggest factors. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> in like creating who I am, right? Mm-hmm. And so we want people to be good parents yes. <laughs> and care about their children and, and want the best things for them. And of course, things still happen, right? We still experience the adversity of life. Right. However, the better the environment, the better and more able kids are t- to learn. Yes. And I also think, so that speaks to something else that I, we'll, we won't get off on that tangent, but I think, yes, we parents, families need to be strong, but I think what are we doing as a community to help those parents if they can't make ends meet and they have to have multiple jobs, then they can't be at home to have those conversations with their kids. I taught in a school that had a lot of refugee families in it, and I would go to, we did home visits as part of that school um, setup. And I went to one home of one of my students and the nicest man was his dad. And um, he and I were talking about applying for a free and reduced lunch. And I was helping him fill out the application. You have to fill out how much you earn. And this was a man with, I think, five children, if I'm remembering right. And he made $21,000 a year. That is, in my mind, despicable. That this educated, um, intelligent man could only make $21,000 for a family of five. And I think he was invested in his child's education, but he had to work multiple jobs so he could provide for that same child. And so that child came home and his dad wasn't there because he was working and his mom was working and older siblings were working. So I think, yes, families need to be stronger, but strong families need to be given resources that can help them help their children. And I think that we can do better as a neighborhood and as a community to make those resources more available and more equitable, that some someone doesn't have to earn so much so someone can earn a little more. And I think that's not a new idea. And how to make that happen is complicated. But I think more of us realize I can do with a little less, so they can do with a little more. So these children can come to school with more resources. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder how to, that's definitely been a conundrum of time. Yeah. Right? Like, how do you, because in a way, I wonder, like, is the solution 
because it, it is, it's about an investment, a personal investment of, of individuals mm-hmm. that care about the greater, I mean, like a bigger size of group mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. who they're like, I want the best things for this person. I also want the best things for that person. Mm-hmm. And I realized that we're on different like socioeconomic statuses or whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. And yet, how do I give something that's actually going to benefit you? And how how is that going to, like, what's the best thing I can actually give you? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes I don't know if it's things that money can buy, but if it's things that, like, how can we mentor? How can there mm-hmm. be more mentorship? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of why I like the Boys and Girls Club mm-hmm. and those I and those refugee programs that allow people to have a mentor or mm-hmm. that allow those people to potentially assist in, mm-hmm. the, in those programs. But how can we make that a bigger and more universal thing? Yeah, where more people are investing. Yeah, in that. And I wonder if that's more of an individual, how do we get those individuals to, or yeah. you know, how do we get a bigger group of people to be invested in that? Yeah. I think it's the same idea. How do you cultivate curiosity in kids? How do you motivate mentoring in people that, because it has to be a personal choice that I am choosing to invest my time in people. And I think so many people want to help and serve. I think that there are so many good people everywhere, Right. but inspiring, how do you inspire people to feel like I want to do this that may not benefit my child, but it benefits someone else's, it's someone's child. And that child makes my life better if his life is better. Right. Oh, do you feel like you have a solution? <laughs> no, I wish I did because I think that, um, I, I think we would all be happier. I mean, going back to our initial question in the Philippines, I met so many good people who gave to me out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, there was this drink that it's a family joke now, but it's called Halo Halo. And in Tagalog, that means like mixed up. And it was this dessert ish thing that you just put a bunch of different things into. And typically it had like ice and this like, ice creamish thing and those little gelatin beads and corn randomly and mango and then <laughs> evaporated milk. It was, I loved it so much. And I, I mean, I'm kind of a loud person. And so everyone I knew, I would just tell them all the time, I love Hello Hello. It's my favorite thing. And my family came to pick me up at the end of my mission and every home we visited had prepared Hello Hello for us because they knew that I loved it. And they knew that I was visiting lots of different people, but because I was coming to their house, they served my favorite treat to my family. And my cute little sister was only, I don't know, 10 or let's see, she was 13 at the time. And she didn't like this drink. It's very strange. I don't even know if I would like it now, but, um, and she, bless her heart, tried so hard to like it. But after two or three homes, she said, I don't think I can eat one or more of those corn drinks anymore. Do you think we'll have any more? And I said, probably we'll have several more. And we had probably dozens of this Hello Hello drink. But I love that mentality that they knew I loved something. And so they shared, they sacrificed to share that treat with my whole family. And I don't know what elements of their lives made them that way. But I think if we adopted that and said, I'm going to give you this gift because I know you love it, it's going to benefit me and you. 